Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast with host Patrick Donahoe, author of the best-selling personal finance book, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, and one of the nation's most influential financial advisors. The Wealth Standard's focus this season is investing. 2020 opened with markets and asset prices at all-time highs, but many of us experience more financial uncertainty now than we did a decade ago. Although there are more choices and opportunities than ever before, the risk-to-reward ratio teeters on a global fulcrum, contributing to the roller coaster of emotions surrounding financial well-being. It seems like everyone is walking on eggshells. This season, we'll cover topics revolving around investment theory and strategy, atypical investments versus conventional investments, and the role of investing within personal wealth strategies. The Wealth Standard Podcast is committed to inspiring you to be more financially free. There is no better time to gain clarity about your wealth strategy, your investments, and your financial future than now. Everyone, thanks for tuning in this week. This is Patrick, and you're listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Okay, I hope you guys enjoyed last uh, this last episode, part one of the two-part podcast interview with Richard Duncan, who's a professional economist. You can check him out at richardduncaneconomics.com. He has a fascinating video newsletter. You can use the code June, like the month of June to get 50% off. It's uh, richardduncaneconomics.com. Listen, I congratulate you guys for being here. This is a topic and this is information that very few people really understand. And so I'm hoping you guys have taken the time to listen and to understand where Richard is coming from, what he sees from his perspective. I think that's going to help you really, number one, be aware of what's going on. And then two, understand where things can go given involvement by the Federal Reserve and, uh, and the government as they try to stimulate the, the economy. Uh, so go ahead over to the show notes as well. If you're you know, in, a, in a car or not able to write anything down, uh, thewealthstandard.com, it will have links to everything that we have been mentioning, including Richard's books, his newsletter, his free newsletter as well. And then one final thing before we get to part two, my good friend, Mike Dillard, is, you know, he, he has a new community that he is launching specifically to help individuals as they go through what I would say a, a significant change when it comes to employment, uh, career, work. It is, it's going to be huge. And Mike is the foremost expert on everything digital, anything that has to do with online marketing, sales, creating value. So you, this is a great opportunity. So go head over to thewellstandard.com for more information on that. Okay, enjoy part two with Richard Duncan. To respond, but there comes a time, this is how I look at it. Does debt have a, a new definition, right? Because debt in the past was something that was ultimately paid back, right? Is this debt that's just going to be created and then never paid back and just continues to pile and pile and pile and pile? Or does that change? Because looking at what you're alluding to, where you use this type of stimulus to invest in innovation, right? In all sectors, you know, mainly the ones that you talked about where there's clearly going to be some, you know, whoever wins the race is going to have dominance over certain, you know, certain sectors, you know, case in point, China. But ultimately you look at, that could be deflationary at some point, because ultimately if you have no cancer, right? Or very low rates of cancer, you have a lot of efficiency when it comes to transportation or energy, you know, because of that innovation, isn't technology in that sense deflationary? And so what, is there a pivot or is there ever a pivot? And maybe this is the time to bring in kind of the conversation with, you know, 
debate with Ray Dalio and, and John Malden, but, but I don't know, that, that was a question I wanted to ask. I'm not even sure if I'm articulating that that well, but at what point you know, do the tides turn or, or do they ever turn? You started off by saying, will the debt ever be paid back? Well, the debt from World War II was never paid back. Government debt increased by five times in four years. So that would be the equivalent now of U.S. government debt jumping from roughly $20 trillion to $100 trillion mm-hmm. in over four years. Well, so that's the sort of magnitude we're talking about. That yeah. government debt in World War II was never repaid. I mean, it was just rolled over and the economy grew. And luckily, at the end of the war, there was a consumer boom, borrowing boom, and also they'd saved during the war. But so the same government's generally don't pay back money. They just, the economy grows and they grow their way out of it. So eventually the level of government debt was about 115% in 1946. Eventually it came down below 40% just because the economy grew. And this was despite big budget deficits in, in a lot of the time, starting in the 60s and going on ever afterwards, particularly during the Reagan administration, the largest peacetime budget deficits in history. So looking ahead though, now, there are various ways of investing on the scale that I would like to see our government undertake. They could do it the way they did with NASA under one big roof, which worked out pretty well, and manage it all themselves. Or alternative, most people don't like that idea these days. Alternatively, they, the government could undertake these investment programs and invest in these new industries in the following way. The government could act as a big venture capital company and set up joint venture companies with the 10,000 most promising American entrepreneurs, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and all the younger ones as well. The government provides the funding, provides lavish funding for these ventures and these industries of the future, and keeps a 60% equity stake. In other words, the public owns 60% of these companies. And the entrepreneurs keep 40% and manage the company. And when one of them comes up with a vaccine for cancer, you list it on NASDAQ for $10 trillion, and the taxpayers keep $6 trillion, and this thing pays for itself many times over. In that case, the debt would be repaid, and we cure cancer, and we cure all the other diseases as well. We stop aging, and then hopefully reverse it, and people live decades longer, which solves our Social Security and Medicare problems, and makes everyone much happier and healthier, greatly improves the world, and everyone lives happily ever after for a very, very, very long time in a prosperous, peaceful world with, under U.S. leadership. So maybe transition now to the debate is appropriate, right? Because is our monetary policy, the way that it exists right now, is it set up to do what you just talked about, to make that type of pivot? Or I know that they've yes, talked about quantitative infinity, you know, which is essentially buying, you know, even being open to buying equities, you know, buying government, you know, not just government securities, but corporate securities. And so when does it pivot to the point where now it takes equity position into, into companies and goes down this, this path? Does something have to change other, other aspects of how the Federal Reserve operates and the power that it's given? Or is, can it operate that way and make that impact without changes? No, it continue operating exactly the way it does now. It would only be necessary for it to create money and buy the government bonds that the government sells to finance these investments. So it would be government debt and government ownership and Fed financing. But you referenced earlier Ray Dalio. Sometime about nine months ago, Ray Dalio published a number of articles 
on his LinkedIn account and elsewhere called MP3, Monetary Policy 3, and which were spot on. He said monetary policy one was the traditional kind of monetary policy where when the economy overheated, when the economy got weak, the Fed would cut interest rates and provide stimulus to the economy that way. Traditional monetary policy. But once interest rates hit 0% during the crisis of 2008, that wasn't effective. They couldn't cut rates anymore. So they moved on to monetary policy two, which was quantitative easing, where the Fed would create money and buy long-term government bonds, where the yields were above 0%. And by buying the long-term government bonds with the newly created money, they could push up the price of the bonds and drive down their yields to very low levels, in fact, any level they wanted, and stimulate the economy that way. But now, he said, we've reached the point where even the long-term interest rates are very close to zero. And so monetary policy, too, is also losing its effectiveness. Yep. and also has some out, undesirable, yeah. undesirable consequences, side, side effects as well. So he said, we're in the next economic downturn, we're going to have to move to uh, what he called monetary policy three, which would be a combination of increased government borrowing financed by increased paper money creation by the Fed. So that's exactly what we have now, MP3. But it's going on on such an enormous scale, you could call it MP3 cubed, I suppose because it's on such an enormous scale. Now, there was a lot of debate about that at the moment. In particular, John Malden, someone I admire, who publishes a newsletter called Thoughts from the Frontline, a very intelligent and nice man I've had the pleasure to meet. He argued the complete opposite. He said that's wrong and that what the government needs to do is to pay down government debt. They need to raise taxes, pay down government debt, and we need to, you know, government debt is way too high already, and we need to go back to some sort of um, austerity through higher taxes and get the debt levels down. Well, with all due respect, that would be absolutely disastrous. That would cause credit to contract, and that would cause a severe recession that would just get worse and worse and worse until they stopped doing that and reversed it entirely. So I published a number of macro watch videos called The Great Debate. Uh, laying out the arguments of both sides and, of course, siding with Ray Dalio. Well, now that the crisis has struck, no one could have anticipated this. But even after a very brief period of resistance, John Malden is now all in with MP3. He said, this is the right policy. We have to have increased government spending. It has to be financed by the Fed. This is what we have to do. That's going to be a lot higher. We're just going to have to learn to live with it. So that debate is over. And luckily, thank heavens, it was decided in the right direction. Because if we had gone the other way, we would now be in a country, well, in a world with lots of people who were very hungry and desperate. All right. So I have a few more questions because obviously this is it's a very deep conversation, maybe not for you, right? But I think for most listeners and me as well, because there's, there's so much that our economy and world is built on. And you know, what you had just mentioned in the last couple of minutes, right? If you were to pivot to something different, right? Going this direction as opposed to the direction we've been going for, you know, 60, 70 years, right? It'd be catastrophic. But looking at, you know, the vulnerabilities that the, the economy has, what I'm hearing you say through all of this is that this is, you know, whether it's sensitivity to disruption like the coronavirus, you know, and COVID-19, you know, impacting productivity and markets, you know, being really sensitive and selling off and but that would exist most other types of if there was a like a let's say a, a gold back you know where there was 
a dollar that was backed by something tangible, right? There'd be so much restriction there that there wouldn't be as much expansion. So all things being equal, right? There's, whether you have this type of monetary system or that type of monetary system, there's never going to be like utopian perfection. But where we're at right now, right, is, is the best way to just continue to, to grow, right? And the way that we've been growing is to maintain the same idea, but potentially scale it up and be more directive toward it. And that's where you stand as far as, you know, if you were in Jerome Powell's seat, right? And, or maybe a, a policy or, or lawmaker's seat and wanted to make a difference, it would be using, you know, our reserve status as well as the ability to monetize debt and direct it toward, you know, the innovative technologies that are going to make life better for, for everyone. That's right. We need to get past the economic orthodoxy that was appropriate. <laughs> <I love> that. <laughs> that was appropriate for the previous economic system we lived under when dollars were backed by gold. That was you could call that system capitalism. I tend to call our new system creditism because it's driven by credit growth. We need to understand we have a different kind of economic system now, and it, the rules are different. It works differently. We need to understand what these rules are. We need to understand how the economy works now. We need to master the rules and make the most of them. And what we will find is that this creates an unprecedented opportunity in human history where it really is possible, as we've seen over the last 12 years, for the government to borrow trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars and have the Fed finance what was a third of that with newly created money without causing inflation, giving us the opportunity to invest trillions of dollars in the years ahead in the industries that will enable us to induce a new technological revolution and radically improve human happiness and well-being. Now, it's useful to put this into historical context a bit more even by looking at what happened when we were living under the rules of our previous economic system, when gold was backed by money. So let's look at, start with World War II, oh, sorry, World War I. Then we, the world was on a gold standard, but during, war broke out in Europe in 1914, and all the European countries went to war. They couldn't finance that on a gold-backed monetary system, so they just started printing a lot of paper money. Well, the U.S. didn't enter the war until 1917, and up until that time, the United States sold war materials to both sides, lots of them. And so there was an enormous amount, and they insisted on being paid with gold. So there was a huge surge of gold inflows into the United States. The monetary base expanded radically. And this, the banks could lend a multiple of the amount of deposits, the amount of gold deposits they had. So then we entered the war, world in 1917. The war ended in 1918. The government spending went up during the war. And all of that created a big economic boom in the United States. Well, of course, after a little while, the, the boom turned into a bust, the famous depression of 1921, which the Austrians, economists, and libertarians often reference as being an example of how things should be managed. Because in 19, that depression didn't last very long. It was quite severe, but it was short and sharp. And the government didn't do anything effectively. But what the Austrians don't mention is that the reason we pulled out of that depression in 1921 so quickly, and we did, was because that was the decade of con that consumer credit and consumer financing was born. The consumers had almost no debt in 1921, but then they started buying automobiles on consumer credit and sewing machines and refrigerators and everything else that you could buy on consumer credit. 
more and more of them got mortgages and, and moved into houses out of the city and, and the suburbs. And so there was an explosion of consumer credit that occurred all during the 20s that pulled us out of the 1921 depression. Now in 2008, that wasn't possible to repeat that playbook because the consumers were so already heavily indebted, they weren't going to pull us out of anywhere except down into a depression. Now in 1930, the consumers reached the point in the US where they had too much debt, they couldn't keep repaying their debt, and, and the bubble, the consumer credit bubble of the 1920s popped. And at that point, everyone was a capitalist and uh, believed in laissez-faire and market forces. Uh, that was ingrained conventional wisdom in everyone. President Herbert Hoover was president. He was an enormously talented individual. He wrote a three-volume autobiography, which I actually read all of. The man was an extraordinary individual, but he believed in market forces as everyone else did in laissez-faire, and he didn't do very much of anything. And by the time Franklin Roosevelt took office in March 1933, the economy had collapsed into a depression, and a third of the banks failed. Now, at that point, the Fed was not free to create as much money as it wanted because it had to have enough gold to back the dollars that it created. So it wasn't free to do quantitative easing because they could only, you can only do quantitative easing by creating money. You can't create money if you don't have, back then if you don't have gold to back the money. They didn't have enough gold to back the money. And on top of that, the government didn't do very much in terms of fiscal stimulus. They didn't, have, they didn't triple their government debt over the next decade the way that we did after 2008. So in 2008, the government spent, had trillion dollar budget deficits and the Fed financed them. And that's why we didn't collapse into a Great Depression this time, because we weren't constrained by the rules of the gold standard anymore. And this allowed us to prevent that. We had a bubble. We managed to keep the bubble inflated. And we kept the bubble inflated for another 12 years. I mean, just imagine if things had collapsed, we wouldn't have iPads. <laughs> we would have never seen the Game of Thrones. You know, a lot of good things have happened in the last 12 years that wouldn't have happened if the economy had collapsed into a depression, like during the 1930s. We never came out of the depression of the 1930s driven by market forces. We came out of the depression because of World War II and massive expansion of government debt. As I've said, government debt expanded five times in four years. That ended the depression. And the Fed financed a significant amount of that government debt by creating money and buying government bonds under emergency powers. The Federal Reserve Act had to be changed to allow the Fed to create more money during the war than it would have been able to do as the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 was originally written. So, yeah, the act has been amended a number of times, I know. Numerous times, every time making it easier to extend credit. And now the Fed just uses its 13... Section 13.3, they call it emergency powers. There's something called, they have, one of the amendments to the Federal Reserve Act is called Section 13 bracket 3, which essentially allows the Fed to lend money to institutions that it normally wouldn't be permitted to lend to. In other words, all kinds of institutions, brokers and dealers and money mutual funds and essentially anyone in the financial industry who wants to borrow from the Fed can now do so. Whereas originally, the Fed could only lend to commercial banks, in fact, member banks of the Federal Reserve System. Now they can essentially lend to anyone against any sort of collateral, practically. And so they're using these emergency measures now very aggressively. I think at last count, they've used this Section 1330 emergency rule 
in 10 different instances of cases of how they're extending loans every corner of the financial system now. All right. So I have a, f- I have a few more questions. This has been really, it's been enlightening for me, right? Because because you're right, in the end, the way in which we came out of 2008 and 2009, right? And bailing out, and I look at, okay, the school of thought that it's like bailing out banks, right? Or stimulating the economy using monetary policy, right? I think people you know, define what happened in, a, in a, a few different ways. But I look at what happened, right? And as you alluded to, the, the innovation that occurred, unemployment at really low levels. You know, I, I think that there was unintended consequences, but they would have been there anyway, right? Where individuals, businesses overextend themselves, right? When they overextend themselves, when there is a blip, when there is a, you know, a black swan, you know, it throws them off. But whether they had debt or not, they would have been thrown off. And so I look at, you know, what's going on right now with, you know, what the Fed is going to do, what they're going to do in the, in the future, you know, to you is probably not surprising. And, and it continuing to happen to prop everything up is those are the tools that they have. And those are the those are the tools they're going to they're going to use. But looking at you know just a few other few other elements, which I'm curious about, because I don't know a, a lot about it. I just know that there is an, an element of that, which is you know the uh, credit swaps, right? So I know a big part of you know what happened in 2008 2009 was the result of you know insurance being purchased on assets that if they declined in value, they you know these insurance policies would pay off, and they were both you know swaps of those that owned the underlying security and then those that didn't. And now I know that it's you know just grown a multiples as far as these types of these types of contracts, as it relates to like credit defaults, right? Because as you know, the businesses are flailing. I mean, you, know, you have Virgin Atlantic that's begging for for money. You know, the airlines need money, and they've, you know some of them. I think a few of them have already been downgraded. Like, what role do these derivative contracts have in influencing what you know the Fed can do? Because in essence interest rates are interest rates, right? They're all, in a sense, have some interdependency, right? Right. Well, the derivatives market is such a black box. No one really knows what's going on inside there. One of the largest banks, I was looking at the balance sheet or the annual report just yesterday by chance. And if I recall correctly, their notional value of derivatives exposure was $46 trillion. (laughs) $46 trillion. Now, of course, most of this nets off in their ideal world. The exchange value is, is $50 billion or something like that. But of course, that assumes that n- none of the counterparties go bankrupt. And so the amount of derivatives, before 2008, the derivatives, derivatives were expanding so rapidly that we would have quickly hit a quadrillion dollars worth of notional value of derivatives in total had things not suddenly stopped in 2008. So I, you know, so thanks don't go bankrupt unless the government declares them bankrupt or the government right now without all the government intervention that we have at this point as i said earlier all the banks would be in the process of failing yep. and if yep. the banks fail then of course everyone's deposit just evaporates unless the government prints money and replaces it through deposit guarantees but if you're going to do that you might as well save the bank to start with it'll be cheaper and so my point is is that they have to keep the banks alive. And if there are massive problems in their derivatives position, they're not going to make it public. They're going to cover them over and try to reflate them. I mean, Fannie and Freddie had very, very large derivatives positions when they failed. Why didn't the government completely nationalize them? Or why didn't the government nationalize Citi and Bank of America when they had to have large equity injections from the government? Well, if you nationalize these things and look very carefully, 
you know, who knows what might end up being the negative net worth of these things given their derivatives position. No one really knows. You don't want to own them. <laughs> you don't want to be responsible for the, for the negative losses that could potentially come out of these things. So I said at the beginning earlier on that the government manages the economy. That's not the same thing as they are planning what's going to happen. Things happen and then they respond to what happens. So they made many big mistakes along the way. One of them was deregulating the banks too much and allowing them to run out of control and buy up stockbroking companies and insurance companies. In other words, they repealed Glass-Steagall, which separated stockbroking from commercial banking. Thanks. And then another thing is they allowed derivatives to go unregulated, which was completely insane. But things happen in a democracy. So many people talk about conspiracy theories of this or that. From what I've seen of Washington, no one is in control. There is no, you know, there are certain groups and individuals who are pushing the lobbyists to get individual things that they want. But this is far too complex for anyone to control. So the bank lobbies pushed for deregulation. They gave the congressmen and the senators enough money that they got what they wanted in terms of you know, corporate finance, in terms of campaign financing. So they were deregulated. Now they're too big to fail and they can't be allowed to fail. So that, that's how we got here. Well, that's all very unfortunate, but that's just the way things have evolved. And we can't allow the banks to collapse. And you know, so it's hard to project out into the future what would be the ideal policy, because given the fact that we need credit to keep expanding, if you were to nationalize the banks, then what are you going to do with them? I don't want to speculate too far, but I mean, you know, perhaps we should think more in terms of not allowing buybacks by the banks or other corporations. And capping executive pay salaries, not only at banks, but at other major industries and make them all take a much more long-term focus rather than just basing all their compensation on their share price performance over the next quarter. But that's certainly something that needs to be well thought through before anything radical is done. And that can wait until after we're out of this current potential catastrophe. All right. The last question I was going to ask really had to do with, you know, as it relates to the stimulus that happened, as well as what's most likely to come, which is probably more stimulus and in relation to getting people back to work. I mean, who knows what's going to happen with you know employment once they reopen states and economies? Who knows what's going to happen then? But also, you know, you look at other stimulus programs, whether it's uh, real estate related. I mean, who knows? But what would you, you know, if, if you were the listener, you're the audience listening to different, you know, these different points about the economy, how our economy works right now, what the Fed is likely to do, you know, as things un- unfold based on the, on the pandemic, what would you be paying attention to? Like, what, were the, what are the signals? What are the signs? What news are you watching, paying attention to in order to tell you what is going to be, you know, some of the opportunities available? What are going to be the end, end results of? you know, the government's involvement and what, you know, what that's going to do to to the economy, to interest rates, to investments, to assets, and so forth. The most important thing, the thing that's going to determine whether this is a recession, a very bad recession or a depression, still depends on the size and the speed of the government's policy response in terms of how much the government supports the economy through these rescue bills and how much the Fed creates in terms of paper money creation. Now, so far, so good, but there was a very alarming piece of news this morning I read. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said, hold on here. 
debt's getting too high. Let's wait and take a look and see how things are going before we have more government rescue programs, more government deficit spending. If that sentiment spreads and we slow down on the amount of support the government deficits are providing to the economy, then everything's going to collapse. And Mitch McConnell will own this depression. He will be vilified throughout history for uh, such stupid policies. The debt, we can deal with the debt. We can't survive an economic collapse. Or, well, perhaps we could survive it. We won't look the same when it's over. So that's the main thing. What we want to see for a positive outcome is more and more support programs so that the economy doesn't collapse. We don't know how long the virus is going to collapse. We don't know how long we're going to have millions of people unemployed, tens of millions of people unemployed. But as long as we do, the government's going to need to keep sending them checks. And we're going to continue to need to keep our small and medium-sized businesses in business and even our major corporations and the banks. We have to prop up the economy no matter how much it costs or how long it takes. We can afford this. We must do this. So that above everything else is a signal you want to watch for. If that goes the wrong way, then, you know, look out below. There, you can't see how far we could fall. So other than that, I don't know. You know, do you want to buy stocks? Uh, I don't give specific investment advice. but you know, even in good times, stocks are very, very risky. My personal experience, I started off working in stocks in Hong Kong in 1986. The first 12 months I was in Hong Kong, the stock market went up 100%. And the Hong Kong economy that year was growing by 13% GDP growth. Everything was rosy. And I woke up one morning and Wall Street had fallen 23%, October 87. The Hong Kong stock market was closed for two weeks, but when it reopened, it fell 50%. And my stocks, which were especially speculative, fell all about 90%. So even in a booming economy, bad things can happen to good people when it comes to stocks. And so, you know, if you're feeling lucky and you think the Fed's going to prop up the stock market, then, you know, roll the dice. But if things go wrong, stocks are, were expensive, very expensive going into this crisis. Now that earnings are collapsing, they're still very expensive based on any sort of PE valuations. So don't ask, don't ask me. If you want yeah, control- I mean, well, It's one of those things where if, it, you know, if there is stimulus, that's a signal, right? That's a sign. If there isn't, right, then that's also a sign. They can go a, a few different directions. But I think that the, you know, we haven't seen the extent of the economic disruption. I mean, there's been zero productivity for almost a month and a half. Right, going going on two months most likely, and that right there. I mean, yeah, we're getting quarterly earnings this week. Who knows what they're going to be second quarter, right? Given all of this all of this disruption. So, yeah, if, if you're... so the stock market basically bottomed the day the Fed announced QE infinity, and then it rebounded twenty five percent or so. So that's that's the reason uh, the government support now. So who knows what will happen next? I mean, I do think this, the Fed will try very very hard to prevent the stock market from falling more than 25%. They'll pull out all the stops. I think if they, you know, they're already buying junk bonds. So if push comes to shove, they will buy stocks directly. They will not let the stock market fall 50 or 75%, in my opinion, uh, even if they have to jump in the market and buy them directly. Uh, because that, as I said, asset price inflation has been the supplement to credit growth over the last 12 years. And our economy depends on asset prices staying high. So they're going to work very hard to try to keep them high, and they're going to work very, very hard to keep them from completely evaporating. 
even if that means the Federal Reserve Act has to be completely revised once again to allow direct purchases of stocks. That's what it, that's what it takes. That's what they'll do. But you know, it's a very dangerous game. I think for personally, for individuals who want security and control over their own lives, owning land with houses on top to rent out is a good approach. Land, they're not making any more of it. Uh, you can generate rental income from having a house and renting it out. You can grow food on top of the land. No one's going to steal your land from you. And it's going to be there when you wake up in the morning. And like gold, perhaps all this money creation will cause gold to keep moving higher. But if gold moves higher, land prices will also move higher for the same reason. And if gold falls a lot, land will probably fall a lot as well. But at least you'll still have rental income. And you won't have to pay anyone to store your land. And you won't have to worry about someone coming in your house and stealing your land. So for security, approach toward developing a portfolio of rental properties, not in condominiums, which can be built forever, but land with houses is, is a secure long-term approach for people who want to have income and security over the long run, in my opinion. Plus, it's one of the assets that's easiest to leverage, right? And I think leveraged assets are the ones that you know, fall in line with what our monetary policy is because asset prices go up because of leverage. You have more danger there is as well. You can have so much. You have to realize that rents can fall a lot more than you might imagine, more than we've ever seen before if this crisis persists. All the rental contracts are going to be torn up. So if you have too much leverage, then you can fail. So it's a matter of striking a right balance. Everyone has in their own risk tolerance levels, but you do have to be aware of the risk that you may not be receiving the rent you anticipate. No, amen to that. It's one of those, yeah, with leverage, you know, you could be over leveraged, you could be under leveraged, you could have no leverage, right? There's always going to be, you know, some sort of downside and upside to, to each, but it's the, it's the balance that makes sense. But I think looking at, you know, where the economy goes, right? Where influence that, whether it's the Federal Reserve or whether it's, uh, it's government, because I think you know, you, you look at, you know, the uh, Munch and the Treasury Secretary and you look at, you know, this being an election year, right? Obviously, they, they seem to know what they're doing, right? And the response was really quick. And I look at, you know, whether, you know, Mitch McConnell saying what he did, who knows, you know, there's always going to be those voices that have differing, uh, differing opinions. But at the same time, you know, you, you've caused me to, to realize that, you know, if there isn't a continuation of the monetary policy that we have uh, right now, you know, there is an alternative, but it is not pretty at all. And there's a lot of things to be concerned about. But if there is intervention, right, and it gets to different levels, I think that is, those are the signals to know that, okay, if this, if this happens, right, then this is likely where the economy is going to go. This is likely where the opportunities, opportunities are. Maybe say one, one additional thing, uh, Richard, in regards to, you know, the perspective you have when it comes to government's taking a different turn and making investment in innovation. What have you seen to lead you to believe that that is a potential direction that the United States would take? Well, so that's, that's, I'm glad you asked that. Last year in November, there is a publication by, by the National Science Foundation. It comes out once every two years called Science and Engineering Indicators, I think. And when it was published in November, it indicated that for the first time in history, China had invested more in research and development than the United States, and that if current trends continued, they would be increasing 40%, they would invest 40% more 
by the end of this decade in research and development in the U.S. And also around the same time was when China rolled out 5G in 30 Chinese cities, which no, no doubt is many, many, many more Chinese cities by now. So in November, uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer made a speech in Washington before a, a conference of defense. Establishment, basically, the conference was on artificial intelligence and what the U.S. policy should be. And of course, everyone there was alarmed by these developments in China getting ahead of us. And so he he proposed in that in a speech he made there, a short speech. He said he was going to propose that the United States invest 100 billion dollars over the next five years in artificial intelligence, the U.S. government, in artificial intelligence, and the other industries of the future. He named several of them: robotics and quantum computing, and usual ones you would imagine. So that was the really the first indication where the policy establishment in Washington was waking up to our new Sputnik moment, where we needed to radically change our thinking about desirability of government investment. So that was the first step, and an encouraging one. But a hundred billion dollars, I'm sorry to say, is not going to do it. Over five years, that would be twenty billion dollars a year. China would still be miles ahead of us. We need. There's no point for the United States to be talking in terms of billions of dollars. We need to be thinking in terms of trillions of dollars. As we have seen in the last couple of months, we've just spent two trillion dollars. It's coming up three trillion dollars. This is the sort of thinking we need to apply to our national security because it is a threat. We are in danger. We are going to be surpassed. And the consequences: China may be a benign sovereign; they may not be. Once they're in the lead, we will never get it back. I'm not anti-China. I'm not certainly not anti-Chinese. I've lived in Asia most of my life. Great people. I want the United States to be the global leading power for generations to come. And there's no reason we cannot be. We can afford it, and that's what we need to do. So the sooner, hopefully, one possible good thing that could come out of this crisis is to demonstrate that we hopefully will see that it is possible to spend trillions and trillions of dollars and finance it with trillions and trillions of dollars of paper money creation without creating lots of inflation in a very short period of time. If that proves to be true, then we need to jump on that and start investing trillions and trillions of dollars in the, in our future and our national security. And along the way, as I've said several times. Cure all the diseases, expand life expectancy, make the world a much better and happier place for everyone. Well, I think now is is one of those prime times because you have, you know, a a shift in the generation that has, I would say, governance, whether it's over businesses or other leadership oriented positions. Where it's a younger, it's a younger generation, right? The older generation is going to you know, is, is retiring and taking a step to the side. I think the younger generation now can, you know, take that type of investment capital and and know what to do with it, as opposed to an older generation that may not have have had the wherewithal to do to do anything with it. So that'll be that's also a, an interesting, you know, coincidence. You know, and hopefully there is that type of direct. I know Schumer's older, you know, but that's a good sign. I didn't know that he had said something like that, but this isn't like a distraction, and so hopefully they can keep on that trajectory. All right. Yes.、Yeah, so that's a good point. I mean, a lot of the young people now are very much in favor of. Medicare for all, or free university education. Now, those are certainly admirable goals. But my concern is is that we can spend 
enormous amounts of money treating diabetes and heart disease and the other diseases, or we can cure those diseases with the same amount of money forever. We can cure all the diseases if we invest. If we just spend this money treating the diseases for everyone, then we may not have enough money to cure them. So my focus would be, you know, of course we need to have social safety nets for as many people as we possibly can. We're so far behind most civilized countries in that respect. And so we have to do better. But we can afford to invest on a scale large enough not just to treat everyone's diseases, but to cure all the diseases. Yeah, that's a conversation for another day as far as the wealth gap, right? And how that yeah, it was one of the consequences associated with how much prosperity there was over the last decade, right? But it was only amongst those that you know owned assets. Anyway, we can go down that road next time. Maybe that next time is when your new book comes out. It sounds like you've postponed it a little bit. Do you have a, a date or a time frame in which that's going to come out? I think this is really the first interview I've ever talked about this book other than maybe a very brief mention, but I think I don't have a time scale now. I think we're going to have to wait and see how large the government debt becomes and what the consequences are. Or book was, in my mind, it was pretty much ready to go. 21 chapters written and rewritten and rewritten. It was nearing completion at long last. Luckily, with my, you know, my business now is MacroWatch, which is a video newsletter. And every couple of weeks, I upload a new video, essentially me doing a PowerPoint presentation discussing something important happening in the world and how that's likely to affect asset prices, stocks, bonds, commodities, currencies, etc. But luckily, because of this business, MacroWatch, I can do research for my book and then turn them into videos and upload them for MacroWatch along the way. And so much of what this book contains can already be found in the MacroWatch archives over the last couple of years, which contain well over 50 hours of videos at this point and a number of courses, including one on monetary policy, one on China's economic crisis, one called capitalism crisis, and another one called how the economy really works. So I hope your listeners will visit my website at richardduncaneconomics.com and check out what's there. If they'd like to subscribe to MacroWatch, I'd like to offer them a 50% discount if they use the discount, they go to the Richard Duncan Economics, click on the subscribe button. When prompted, if they use the discount coupon code June, like the month of June, then they can subscribe at a 50% discount. Or at the very least, they could sign up for my free blog and follow my work that way. Yep. You know, I talked about on the introduction and, and we'll have it in the show notes as well, the links to all of that. Uh, and also kind of a, an overview of what MacroWatch is and I mean, they're amazing. I mean, these aren't, you know, hour and a half podcasts that we just did. These are like 10 minute, 15 minute videos. They're very concise and easy to understand. But at the same time, because of how quickly things are going, not having the understanding of, of basic, you know, fundamentals of economics and specifically how, you know, the monetary aspect of the global society works, it's going to be hard really to know what people are talking about in what direction things are being taken. And so you can sit on the sidelines and or be a deer in the headlights, or you can step up and learn about economics and actually understand and think intelligently about it and understand the implications of it uh, one way or the other. Uh, and hopefully, you know, the direction that actually helps you and benefits you as opposed to the one that doesn't. If people want to understand how the economy really works in this new economic system that we have, MacroWatch will teach them. It's not very complicated. I mean, it's not very complicated. I use lots of charts. It's all very clear. I highly recommend it. <laughs>
Yeah, you make it easy to understand. I mean, the, the way in which you approach it, the graphs are not these in, incredibly insane and really difficult to understand graphs. I mean, it, it's it's very very well put together. So we'll we'll make sure we put all those links as well as the discount code in the uh, in the show notes as well as uh, in the email that we that we send out. So, well, Richard, I'm going to break this into a couple of parts. Obviously, an hour and you know forty minute uh, podcast. Is specifically talking about economics is, is sometimes difficult to digest in one meal. But I, you know, I, I, yeah, I greatly appreciate this time. It's, it's helped me to, to think through a few things. When you get closer to having a book launch, whether it's this year or sometimes it, sometime in, in the subsequent year, let's get back on the, back on the horn or maybe even earlier as, as things kind of unwind, unravel and, and start to kind of piece back together. I'd love to have you back on. Okay. I'd love to do that. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And hey, by the way, congratulations on your success. You seem to be doing very well with this uh, podcast and your other businesses. Well, you know, I'm just one of those, like, I'm naturally curious. And if there's business there, great. You know, if not, there's so much opportunity. <laughs> there's just so much opportunity. And I think that in our day and age, when we have, you know, an incredibly easy way to communicate with people, I mean, you're in Thailand, but yet you have videos that you post and you, you know, get revenue from that. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing world that we live in. And, uh, you know, and I appreciate you saying that it's, it's been, been a fun ride right now. It's, it's really lonely because I have nobody in my office and, you know, a bunch of people on my team, but it's, uh, you know, I'll, we'll make this work too. Well, if you think of opportunities we can both participate in, let me know. And if you can recommend me as a speaker to other podcasts or friends or in any way support the growth of MacroWatch and finance my books, that would be very much appreciated. Yeah, definitely. No, I, I plan. Maybe we can talk offline briefly, but yeah, I plan on it. You know, have some, some connections in areas that I think would really benefit from understanding your perspective. But let's go ahead and wrap up the podcast and then just stay with me for a few minutes and I'll tell you what I'm talking about and then we can connect afterward. Okay. Okay. All right, everyone. Thank you guys so much for listening. And like I said, go ahead over to thewellstandard.com and look at all the different links that we have mentioned in the show notes. Again, thanks for uh, all of your support and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Whoa.